Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 21st, 2011, and my guest is Dean Baker. Dean is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Dean, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me on. Our topic for today is the mess that the economy is in, how we got here and how we might get out of it. And let's start with the first part. How did we get here? What uh, what went wrong? Well, I see our economy as having been seriously on balance, in some ways really dating back from the 80s, that you could tell a story of sort of a virtuous pattern of growth, 60s, uh, 50s, 60s into the 70s, where you had uh, productivity growth, very good productivity growth, in fact, that was passed on and wage growth pretty much up and down the income ladder. That led to increased consumption, increased demand, therefore increased investment, more productivity growth, et cetera, et cetera. It really broke down in the 80s. Uh, you could trace that to a number of factors. Uh, I think a big part of that is the weakening of unions. Uh, we saw a big fall in unionization rates in the 80s. It had begun earlier, but accelerated. Also, the power of unions was weakened substantially because you, you had, uh, following the PATCO strike, there was a willingness to fire striking workers, hire replacement workers, so that meant uh, that was a much less effective tool. Um, I'd say globalization played a big role that uh, we, the way we structured it, certainly uh, in the 80s in particular, you had a big run-up in the dollar, which had a very negative impact on manufacturing workers in the United States, which had been um, really the center of uh, the unionized uh, workforce. Um, anyhow, long and short, you, you had a situation where following uh, the beginning of the decade, the beginning of the 80s, uh, wages for most workers no longer moved in step with productivity growth. This, in effect, created some of a demand gap um, that had some impact in the 80s, much more so in the 90s. And the demand gap was, in effect, filled by the bubbles. So in the 90s, uh, we had the stock bubble um, that ended up uh, pushing the economy to, you know, in many ways, very high levels of employment and output. But, of course, that couldn't last. The bubble eventually burst. Um, we got the recession in 2001. And the recession proved hard to get out of. It's always hard to get out of uh, the uh, recession caused by collapse of an asset bubble. Um, When we did finally get out of that and we really began to see healthy growth and job creation, that wasn't until 2003, by the way, the the fall of 2003, it was on the back of the housing bubble. And, of course, that bubble was even bigger than the stock bubble, at least in its impact on the economy. When the housing bubble collapsed in 06, 07, um, that led to the economic collapse for two reasons. The one hand, you had it was directly driving construction. We lost around four percentage points of GDP in annual demand because of the fall off in construction. It's about six hundred billion a year. Then on top of that, you had uh, consumption demand being driven by the the housing wealth effect. We had around eight trillion dollars in housing bubble wealth at the at, at the peak of the bubble. Um, pretty much all that's disappeared. The result of that has been a big rise in the savings rate. It had been over 5%. Uh, it's down a little bit last quarter or two, but it had been over 5% compared to pretty much zero at the peak of the bubble. That translates into a loss of around $500 billion in annual demand. 
So you saw a big fall off in demand in residential construction. There was also a bubble in non-residential that burst as well a little bit later. Uh, fall off in consumption demand. We're looking at a shortfall in annual demand of probably over $1.2 trillion. And we simply don't have the ability to, to, to fill that at the moment. We could do it with government spending, but um, the private sector is not going to step up and fill it simply because there's no dynamic that would cause the private sector to, to step up and fill that gap. So basically, we're recovering from a collapsed housing bubble, and we aren't at least prepared at this point to do the measures with the government that we could, and the private sector is not going to do it on its own, or at least not anytime soon. Let me go – first, I want to talk about the, the union productivity issue. Um, data on this is pretty good. It's not great, but I think it's hard to stay in the argument that the 80s were somehow a, a watershed. I, the PEPCO strike is one aspect, but hasn't unionism been declining in the private sector pretty steadily from 1950 on? Mainly partly because of the change in the composition of jobs, right, yeah. and maybe for other reasons as well. Yeah, no, you had, you'd been seeing the unionization rates peaked at about 55, 56. I'd have to double check exactly. And of course, our data from that period is not that great in any case. But yeah, right. unionization rates definitely had peaked in the 50s. They declined in the 60s. I would say that they did decline more rapidly in the 80s, and we could look through the data. I mean, again, it's not perfect data. But I think there are two things there. One is you had a continuation of a rate of decline that had, you know, certainly had begun earlier. But the other part of the story was even being in a union, you suddenly had much less ability to to bargain effectively in a context where going on a strike could cost you your job. That really wasn't true in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, when when you had, following the PATCO strike, you had several major private sector employers, Greyhound, Eastern, uh, come to mind, but there are a number of others that did the exact same thing. They they fired striking workers, hired replacement workers. That wasn't done in, in, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I mean, I'm sure there were smaller places here and there that did it, but it was considered a really, you know, unusual practice. It was, it was the sort of thing employers didn't do. Basically, the story was you shut down your operation or maybe you operated with a skeletal workforce until until you reached a settlement with your workers. And the question was, you know, who could go longer, you know, the unions without uh, without a paycheck or the the company without without being able to produce anything. So once you had once you once companies availed themselves of the option of actually firing workers, you really did change bargaining power significantly and there were certainly fewer strikes in the in, in the eighties and you know workers, you know, they were very cognizant of the fact that if they went on strike that they did risk losing their jobs. And even in the cases where they did have strikes, it was often the case that the company would say, if you're not back by X day, you know, we're going to start hiring replacement workers. And Didn't real wages grow and real income grow dramatically in the 80s despite that lack of bargaining power? No, they didn't. And in fact, if you look at, if you look, you have to be careful how you look at this. If you take average real wages, they more or less kept, or I shouldn't say wages, average compensation, yeah. more or less kept in step with productivity. But if you look at median or if you look at wages of productive production workers, which you know tend to track roughly the bottom 70, 80% of the workforce, those fall quite a bit behind uh, productivity over that period. Yeah, it depends how you measure inflation, of course. The CPI measures are it, often It doesn't matter flawed. how you measure inflation because no. the point is it's shares. So it doesn't uh, – so, so I'm talking about shares. So you know, you, it doesn't matter what your denominator is. Explain that. I'm well, sorry, shares of what? Shares of output. So – so you could use a, you know, we typically to measure productivity, we use the GDP deflator. I mean, that's a standard measure. Right. Um, 
Whereas if we're looking at real wages, most often we use the, the CPI. Right. But if you use, you, you could use the GDP, GDP deflator as, as the, the denominator to measure real wages for purposes of this comparison, you'd still find for the typical worker, the median worker, or for production workers, their wages did not keep pace with productivity growth. Yeah, I, some of that, that's interesting, because there's a measurement issue in productivity and compensation that, that business sector, the impact of computer falling computer prices has led to much bigger increases in productivity than it has led to decreases in CPI. Which I think is part of that, right? Uh, right that, but if you use the same denominator, it right? That's what I'm saying. I'm agreeing with you. I think yeah, okay. that 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 solves that problem. Yeah. Of course, the other problem you have is that when you have the median, you're going to have problems with uh, composition in the workforce as it changes over time. You're not holding the population constant. So, I've pointed out that in the late 70s, as the divorce rate starts to rise, the household income, for example, uh, and to some extent, median wages of workers. Start is going to be distorted by changes in the just in the number of households and what is the you can have the median fall even though every person is still doing better and I think we haven't fully disentangled those. Yeah, I mean you could beat up the dead a lot. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a story though where where most workers are doing as well in relation to productivity growth in the eighties and nineties. A little different story in the late nineties, which we can get to, but uh, you'd be pretty hard pressed that they're doing as well as as they did in the fifties, sixties. You know, so you find it. You know, if you control for education, you find you know workers with high school degrees, workers who haven't finished high school, workers with uh, um, you know say two years of college. Uh, 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 BA degree, um, you know, you, you pretty much, you know, everyone didn't have a college degree. You find that um, their wages are not, you know, you can control by age, uh, you know, break it down, men, women. You know, you find that pretty much across the board. So I think you have to kind of, you'd have to beat up the data pretty bad to make that result go away. That wages are not keeping pace with productivity over that period. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the most of the comparisons are looking at cross-sections at a point in time. When you follow the same people over time, you get a very same different pe- picture. Yeah, no, no, that's right. And, you know, part of that story is that you're... You Life know, cycle we, effects. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, again, did uh, if you control for age, you know, a 40-year-old in 1990, how'd they do relative to a 40-year-old in 1975? Um, I think, you know, again, there too, I think you'd be hard-pressed to make a case that, that they're compensation increased with productivity over that 15-year period. Well, let's let's move on. Now, one of the stories you're telling is is the role of bubbles. Where in your in your narrative, where did those bubbles come from? So you mentioned the stock market bubble and the housing bubble and why did those happen? Are they natural events or are they monetary events? Where do you put the the causal chain if any? Well, I, I, I think that you're always going to have some erratic movements in, in financial markets. And the question is, do they become self-perpetuating and build to the point where they really move the economy? And certainly both of those did. And, you know, I think I, I, I lay the problem here a lot at, at the foot of the Fed um, that that part of the story, if we look to the 90s, part of the story of what you would have seen, say, uh, we'd gone back 20 years earlier, uh, you would have had more concern about inflation. And, of course, Greenspan was concerned about inflation. He did raise interest rates in, in 94. He raised interest rates three percentage points from uh, early 94 to early 95. 
But then he backed away from that because he, he rightly said he didn't see inflationary pressures in the economy. No reason to let the not to let the economy grow more and let the unemployment rate fall, which is you know in fact what he did over the objections of you know many mainstream economists, including the the Clinton appointees to the Fed. Um, and, and he was right that we didn't have to worry about inflation, but that did create an open door for the bubble to keep growing because there's no doubt about it. Well, low interest rates don't necessarily mean you'll have bubbles. We had low interest rates in the 50s and early 60s, certainly. We didn't have any notable bubbles. Well, they were low and steady rather than falling and low, low and falling. Yeah, right. whether, you know, how much falling, well, they weren't actually, fo- well, I mean, they did fall from uh, 95, the peaks in 95 to the late 90s, but they weren't lower than they were in the early 90s. So, you know, if you look at the federal funds rate, that was 3% in uh uh, 92, I think, was where Greenspan first lowered it to 3%, and then um, he raised it to 6 in, in 94, uh, 94 to 95, raised it to 6, and then he, he knocked it down a little bit, but it was still somewhat higher than uh, the 3% had been in the early 90s. Um, the the long-term rates uh, fell some in the mid and late 90s. I wouldn't say they plummeted, but they did fall a little bit, certainly. You know, And again, that was part of the story there. That was, you know, Active policy, they were hoping to have those fall. But I, I wouldn't say that every time you get a fall in long-term rates or short, whichever you want to put the causal element here, I wouldn't say that leads to a bubble. I'd say that it can lead to a bubble. In the fifties and sixties, it did not. I mean, we had very good growth, we had good investment growth, and you know, it's kind of what you want to see. In principle, low interest rates should mean that that's conducive to economic growth, and it certainly was in that period. Um, in the 90s, uh, I think we had a very different economy, and it was much more conducive to bubbles. And, you know, to my mind, it was the Fed's responsibility to prevent it, and Greenspan just uh, looked the other way. I mean, as a matter of policy, we, we know this now. I mean, we have the, the minutes, the, the transcripts that, you know, they saw the bubble, and they just said, well, we'll let it run its course. And then after, after the bubble burst, um, you know, you began to see uh, actually the run-up in house prices began in, in the 90s. Um, that was when you oh, first. Nineties, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's when you first, Yeah, that was when you first began to see a divergence between uh, the rate of growth in house prices and the rate of inflation. And when the stock bubble burst in two thousand two thousand one, um, unlike Japan, where you know you had the two bubbles growing side by side, and they both collapsed side by side. Uh, it, what happened was, in many ways, it actually fed the growth of the housing bubble, which you know I'd say was for two reasons. One is that. In the wake of the collapse of, of the stock bubble, of course, we had very low interest rates. Greenspan lowered yeah, the federal funds rate sure. to 1%. Um, so one was you had low interest rates, so that was conducive for, for growing the housing bubble. And the other was just that, you know, the, the, the psychology that you had a lot of people felt they were really burned in the stock market, so they thought housing was safe. And if you go back to that time, there were a lot of people saying, well, you could always live in your house. I, yeah. I never quite understood the logic <laughs> of that, but, you know, somehow. It's a true statement. Why it implies you should use your house as a vehicle, it's, uh, it's for. It's like buying a really expensive car because uh, you can always drive your car. Or, uh, yeah, no, I, you know, people would say this like they said something very Wisdom, profound, yeah. and it'd just be kind of scratching my head. And what does this have and to do? And it's tax with deductible. Yeah, it's, they all, that's the other bizarre. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The interest is tax deductible. Um, so you fault Fed policy for in that period, and I do as well. And I think there are other things you fault the Fed for, and I do as well. We'll get to those in a little bit in the 2008 crisis. But just in general, what's your take on on Fed policy and where you think uh, it ought to be in terms of governance and structure? Uh, you know, there are people 
I think it's a very mainstream view that we just we need to learn more. We had Scott Sumner on last week. If all goes well with the way the schedule plays out, but if Scott Sumner says um, we've learned some, we've made progress. Yes, we make a lot of mistakes. Scott's very critical of you know the past three years of monetary policy. So, what do you think? Have we, have we, are we going to get better at it? Have we gotten better at it, or do you think we need something radically done to um, how we treat money in the United States? Well. Uh, I think we've been horrible at it. I mean, you know, the you know, again, I think the Fed hit all the tools it needed to prevent this disaster. And um, whether how much we've learned, I, I guess I see two different stories here. I mean, one is are they doing the right things to get us out of this, and then the other one is do we have is there, is there any reason to believe that we wouldn't be here again? That you know they they have right. things under control yeah. so that if things start we start to see another housing bubble or whatever bubble you know that that grows to dangerous size. They, Take steps. Dealing with the first one, I mean, I, I think you know Bernanke has been better than say the European Central Bank. Uh, the Fed's been better. You know, um, I, I think what basically the Fed should be trying to do is everything it can to boost the economy. And Scott Sumner's idea targeting uh, nominal GDP, I think that's reasonable thing. Uh, Krugman has a little different version, saying that we should target inflation, a higher rate of inflation, say three to four percent rate of inflation, which of course Bernanke actually himself wrote about when he's still a professor at Princeton. Um, those end up, to my view, likely being largely the same thing, and you know, at least for the time being, that not say under all circumstances they'd be the same thing, but where we sit now, I think they would end up looking pretty much the same. Better, um, better, <laughs> yes, yes. So, Probably. so, so I absolutely would love to see you know the Fed. Take you know, adopt either of those. We, there's other ways that you can no doubt frame it, but I think either of those would be better than where we are now. Um, whether for political reasons here, I'm just thinking nearly the politics of the Fed. You know, could Bernanke get that through? Probably not, because you know he had resistance already. You had people on the Fed, three of the governors complaining about um, concerns on inflation. Now I guess we're you know we're we're changing who's voting as of January 1st, so maybe. Uh, I haven't looked closely enough to see who's coming on, but maybe there'll be a little more room there. But uh, I'd certainly like to see more aggressive action. And, you know, again, by comparison with the European Central Bank, he's doing good. By comparison of what he, what I think the Fed should be doing, he's not doing particularly good. They could certainly be much more aggressive. But structurally, would you or do you support some radical change in how the Fed is run? Because, you know, one view says, and we just need to learn more. I'm, I take a more public choice oriented view, which is that the Fed is not particularly designed to help you and me. It's designed to help people with more political power than we have. Its independence is a bit of a sham, and I don't expect much of it. Plus, there's the general problem that it's hard to do. So, um, Yeah. Well, well, in terms of its structure, yeah, I mean, I think it's an abomination. I mean, how, how do you justify having a, a regulatory agency where 12 of the 19 members of its main body, or depending on how you put it, five of the 12 voting members here, I'm talking about the Open Market Committee, are actually appointed by the industry being regulated. Yeah, it makes capture really um, not so difficult to <laughs> to do. It's bizarre. And then you have the New York Fed, which is, to me, even more bizarre the and abominable. The people sitting on the board of that coming from the industry directly. Um, it's who you have dinner with. It's who you chat with. It's who you call when you don't know what to do. Seems yeah, like, no, seems like I, a bad I, idea. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I just, I, I don't under, I mean, I understand, I know the history, how it was set up, but I don't understand how one justifies that. You know, I, I've often said it'd be as though we had the Food and Drug Administration where we had Pfizer and Merck appointing two of the five commissioners. Yeah. 
you know, I think everyone would agree that's not right. And, you know, even where you don't have that, we're always going to have enormous problems with regulatory capture, but where the industry actually puts the people on, that, that I, yeah, that I, I cannot see, I, I can't see a justification for that. Yeah. Um, what should we do? What might we do differently? Well, at the very least, I, I would like to see that the, you know, basically the people who are running the Fed, whether you keep the current governor's structure, I mean, any which way you shape it, that those people are actually appointed by the president, approved by Congress, and answerable to Congress. And I don't, uh, I don't have illusions that somehow makes all the problems of industry capture go away. But at least, you know, there's a clear understanding that this is a agency of the government and it's answerable to democratically elected officials. So I think that's that'd be a part of the story. Um, we do need more openness, and we have made some progress on that. I mean, that was one of the things in the Dodd-Frank bill that wasn't originally part of it, but you know, through this kind of left-right coalition, you had Alan Grayson, one of the most uh, left-wing people in the House, uh, joining up with Ron Paul, one of the more conservative people in the House, and they managed to get through uh, a bill or amendment um, to Dodd-Frank that requires a lot more openness in, you know, in, uh, what the Fed's doing, and on top of that, we had a suit by Bloomberg, so they have to disclose now uh, who gets lending through the discount window with, I, I forget what the time lag was, but, you know, it is, I think you need more openness, we need more accountability, again, none of that's going to solve all the problems, because, you know, we can look at the other regulatory agencies, the Food and Drug Administration's Federal Communications Commission, whatever you want to look to, all those have serious problems with industry capture, but certainly you're better off with not having the industry actually appointing people and also having things more out in the open than has been the case historically with the Fed. Yeah, let's move to 2008 because you've written about that, and I think, again, um, although you and I don't agree on everything, we're, we're going to agree on this, which is what do you think the Fed did wrong – and policymakers in general did wrong in 2008 dealing with the financial crisis spanning from, say, March with the uh, rescue of Bear Stearns up through October of 2008 in the TARP. What's your um, – Lehman, et cetera, in the TARP. What's your take on that period and, and how, what, how, what kind of grades do you give the, the Fed and others? Well, I'd say I'd give them a D. I mean, we didn't want a financial collapse, so I think you know it was good they prevented a financial collapse, but they basically left everything in place. So all the – Banks that got us here, with the exception, obviously, of Lehman, that's being the most notable exception here, but all the banks that got us here, you know, the same people running the banks, they, they were left left at the helm. And yet a situation where much, perhaps most of the banking system had driven themselves into insolvency. And, you know, again, we had a reason, we had an interest in preventing, you know, a complete meltdown, a chain, you know, the continuation of a chain reaction following Lehman that presumably you know, I think we would have seen had you not done anything to to keep AIG alive. I think there was an interest in doing that, but it should have been accompanied by a total overhaul of the banking system. That basically, you know, we these banks would not continue operating as they're doing. With the idea being that we'd be looking to downsize them, replace their executives. Um, those being the main points, and you know, instead we just kept them alive and you know gave them enough money, kept them on life support until they're more or less. And I'm saying more or less because. You know, we still know, say, Bank of America wouldn't yeah. roll out that it still might be insolvent. And so, I, so I find it very strange that a, a Democratic administration, with that opportunity, um, pushed through a reform bill that's really disappointing on that on the on the welfare subsidy side of the of the equation. Uh, and this again, I think, is a place where left and right are coming together. The, the banks are 
it, it's um, it's disgusting. Yeah, and it was just it was completely unjustifiable. I mean, this was this was a mess they had gotten in there through their own, you know, folly, mistakes, greed, whatever term you want to use. And the fact that you would have uh, the government just step in with basically unlimited amounts of money uh, and say, "Okay, we're going to keep you in business and, you know, essentially hold you harmless." And, you know, certainly the country wasn't held harmless. So, it it, it was, uh, you know, to my mind, just really unconscionable. And there's been a, you know, continuous effort now to sort of cover this up, say we made money on this. And, yeah, you know, gosh. this is just, you know, just silliness because, you know, we gave these banks money at a time when liquidity carried an enormous premium. So the idea that somehow, you know, because, you know, the analogy I make, it's like if I, I gave you a 30-year mortgage at 1% interest and you paid it off and then I walked away saying, hey, look, I made money on it. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that, that's not the way we ordinarily do accounting. Yeah, now it's uh, what part I find strange. I'd love to get your reaction. Is the the gen- maybe it's not true, but the impression I have that there's a consensus among many many economists that's very different from your assessment and mine of of the role of the the Fed and and public policy here generally. That there's a lot of there's a I think of a common view that that you know they saved the country as you said you know you can save the country in different ways. Um, but there's most of them don't seem most of our colleagues don't seem to give the a D. They give more like a B, a B minus, a B plus. Um, yes, there are people who say we should have put some strings, but uh, I find the the lack of outrage among academic economists and and policy oriented economists rather strange. Or do you think I'm overstating it? No, I, I, same thing. And uh, you know, and, and I, I don't know whether I, I'm reluctant to say these people are all dishonest, but I I, I think there's some at the very very least disingenuousness in the sense that they're willing to sort of look the other way and, you know, in other circumstances they wouldn't be. So I'll I'll just give you a very concrete example. There was a study done by Alan Blinder, Mark Zandi, both very smart guys, very good economists, where they did a counterfactual and they said, well, what would have happened if we didn't have the bailout? Yep. And their study showed the unemployment rate goes down 15 or 16 percent and stays there for a number of years. And what just struck me as as absurd about this is their their implicit counterfactual is not just that we don't have the bailouts, but we never do anything. We don't do anything. We just yeah. So it's just you know this this isn't the way you know we would ordinarily talk. That's not you know that's not typically how we think about policy. That by not doing this, we're somehow committing ourselves to not doing anything. You know, even after you know, so you get the bad case, the collapse, which I agree we want to avoid that. But even after the collapse, you know, six months later we don't do anything. A year later we don't do any. You know, that's really not a serious counterfactual. And you know, these these are both very smart guys. I think they know better that you know, for a policy they didn't like, and someone modeled it that way, I think they would say that that's that's just being silly because that's not the alternative. Yeah, uh, and I I think you know it's easy to invoke political constraints. You know, certainly there are limits uh, to what to what strings could have been attached to the money or the way the money could have been handed over. Um, but I think the irony, you know, it's easy to talk about that. But the fact is, is that we had a system in place for dealing with this, uh, the FDIC Improvement Act, FDICA, which was passed in I think ninety one, so early nineties, on the grounds that we created a moral hazard with past rescues, <laughs> and yep. we needed to have a way to force uh, large financial institutions to and their decision makers to pay a price. And when it came time to invoke that 
um, statute, it was, I think, invoked once. Uh, I keep, I forget it, whether it was WAMU or Wachovia, did go through the FDIC. Its creditors did take a haircut. But everyone's, every other creditor, with the exception of Lehman, and I have political reasons for being skeptical about this one, but every other creditor, Bayer, AIG, got 100 cents on the dollar and was told by the government, Tim Geithner in particular, that no, 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 no negotiation. Everybody gets, gets 100 cents on the dollar. And I, I just don't, again, that why there isn't more, I understand why there's outrage among the general public. Why there isn't more outrage among our colleagues is, I think, embarrassing. And part of it is looking the other way. Part of it is, this claim I make that uh, you know there's over a hundred economists in the United States who think they're in the top ten of economists, right? And so yeah. they think they're in the running for chair of the Fed or head of the of the council or the uh, National Economic Council, and so you know they they hold their fire. And I think it's um, we're a little bit captured. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's there. There is a lot of truth to that. That you know people are always looking to move up, and you know obviously if you make big criticisms of Bernanke and. You know, the rest of, you know, this included summers, you go through the list of people who are involved in this, you're going after a lot of the big names, and I, I think you're exactly right. I think people are going to be reluctant to do that for the most part. Certainly the, the, certainly the people who think they're next in line, you know, and obviously, yeah, most of them are they not. All, but, they, but they all think they are, I think. Or, and for, I'm, I'm spared that. I'm not next in line, so I can, I can be honest. But on the other hand, uh, it's easy for me to sit here in Fairfax, Virginia, and without any historical um, legacy on the line of as someone like Alan Greenspan or Bernanke has and take pot shots in hindsight. So, you know, that's the flip side of this. It's really easy after the fact to tell a different narrative and explain all their mistakes. We're not sitting there. We weren't in the office, not in the chair. And it's it's a hard job, but uh, I don't think they did it very well. Yeah, well, certainly I'm inclined to agree. And, you know, for better or worse, I mean, I would say these were things I was saying at the time. Now, maybe had I been sitting there, of course, they had access to information I don't have. So, you know, I, I do have to recognize that. But I, I It'd be thought, nice for them to share it with us, you know? I, yeah. I, I, I like what you wrote, and uh, you know, I've said the same thing. In I, One of the most irresponsible aspects of this, and again, John Taylor's written this, and this is uh, as well, and this is against and the Unites, I think, a sprinkling of people across the political spectrum. In the When the TARP bailout was put on the table, uh, the first at, at first blush, it was told – we were told the world was going to come to an end um, – Tomorrow, not not oh, that's going to be dangerous. It's this is it. There's going to be you know uh, an apocalypse, and that it's irresponsible in and of it because in and of itself that can be harmful. But to say that without any evidence, and the same with Bear Stearns, to say we had we had no choice but to sell Bear Stearns off for two dollars later became ten to yes. a to a single suitor over the weekend who was guaranteed thirty twenty nine later thirty two billion dollars worth of assets because quote they were too hard to figure out. That what kind of a democracy is that? It's not. It's not right. No, and these are, these are huge, huge deals. That's the thing. I mean, here you have Congress, though, really big fights over often. You know, sums that might be a tenth that large. And you know, this was just done over a weekend uh, with no in, no public input at all. Well, let's let's move on to the um, to the 2009 period, uh, the stimulus. Uh, what's your view? So. In the aftermath of the 2008 uh, financial crisis and, and various policies we've been just been talking about, we passed in February 2009, uh, 787 later became uh, measured to be 825, $825 billion so-called stimulus package. Um, what's your assessment of whether that worked, how it worked, and whether we should have done something differently? Well, uh, 
I think it did work for what it was designed to do, which was create on the order of uh, two to three million jobs. They originally said three to four, but we ended up getting, you know, if you looked at what was actually sort of stimulus in there, um, it was closer to 700 billion uh, spread. Some of it over those first two years, some of it spent 2011, 12 later years. My, my reason for saying that is just to pin down what actually got spent as stimulus in, in 09, 2010. It came to around 300 billion a year. And, you know, again, based on the, this is in hindsight, this is actually, you go back and read their documents, the, the Obama administration's documents from the time. Um, they were predicting that had they gotten fully what they asked for, they would have gotten three to four million jobs out of it. And since they can, did get considerably less, you know, I'd say two to three million. And there have been some efforts, uh, particularly, uh, I, I tend to like this study, uh, by, by two professors at Dartmouth, James Fair and Bruce Sarkadoti. Um, that finds stimulus did pretty much along the lines of uh, what was what was projected. So I'm inclined to think it worked. It was did what it was designed to do. The big problem, in my view, was it was nowhere near large enough that you know we created two to three million jobs. We probably needed on the order of uh, ten, eleven, twelve million jobs. It simply wasn't large enough. It wasn't long enough. Um, so it didn't deal with the immediate problem. Now there's also issue of you know was the best you know best way to spend the money could have been better targeted. Um, one of the issues that they were very concerned with, they here being the Obama administration, was that things be shovel-ready, get get money out the door quickly. Um, there's a logic to that, of course, that you wanted to create jobs quickly. On the other hand, given that we were looking at a downturn that was going to last a long time, or did last a long time, I think it was reasonably expected to have lasted a long time because we have this big gap in demand that's not easy to fill, um, I think it would have made much more sense to have some longer-term projects to focus on some long-term infrastructure. And what they put in by way of long-term in- infrastructure was fairly was fairly limited. So I think that's unfortunate. We could have had a better directed stimulus. We should have had much, much more. You know, But again, I think we're better off for having it. I, I'm glad we created, let's say, two to three million jobs, whatever the exact number might be. I'm very glad we did that, but it simply was not big enough to get us out of the downturn. And again, with most of the stimulus ending in, in 2010, um, it created a situation where we actually had a drag on the economy in the last year associated with the ending of the stimulus, basically withdrawing the, the stimulus. Same thing as, you know, cutting, cutting the budget, uh, cutting uh, spending, raising taxes. Um, that's contractionary for the economy. And well, we haven't done very much of that. Well, we certainly did cut back. Talk the, about it. We did cut back the spending. I mean, the, uh, the biggest the area of spending was cut back was the aid to state and local governments, and the result of that has been we've seen a sharp fall off in spending at the state and local level. But total federal spending hasn't done anything close to go down over this period, right? Um, as a share of GDP, total federal spending has fallen somewhat. I'd have to double check. Not this. in absolute terms. No, not in absolute terms. Share GDP, though. So let's look at this this job creation thing because I'm I'm a skeptic on it, and you're a supporter of these of these arguments. So I'm I'm interested to try to dig down a little bit and see where we where we disagree. Uh, that Dartmouth study you mentioned that is that the one that goes state by state? Yeah. See, the problem with that it's a strange study, I, and I, then I want to talk about infrastructure, but but that state by state, wouldn't you expect? Government spending in states to have whether you, even if you thought if you were skeptical about stimulus, wouldn't you expect the states that got the most money to create the most jobs? The question is what happens in the states that don't get the money, and the the hidden, unseen, and complicated effects of expectations and uncertainty and tax burden. Uh, 
you can't really look at those by themselves, can you? Well, it's hard for me to for me to see at least those being big negatives. So ordinarily, uh, the simple story is that it would raise interest rates and therefore crowd out other investment. I think you'd be hard pressed to make that story. I mean, obviously, the Fed was being accommodating as well, which of course was appropriate. Had they not been, how much would interest rates have risen? My guess is not a hell of a lot, given that we have somewhere in the order of 1.6 trillion in excess reserves sitting around. But you know, again, we don't know the exact counterfactual. Um, did it create uncertainty? Um, you know, if you look at private sector investment, it's largely recovered. I'm focusing on equipment and software. As I had back and forth with someone a little while ago on that, and they were bringing in structures. And my reason for excluding structures is that, uh, well, well, two things. Residential, obviously, was huge overbuilding. Yeah, it's a problem, bubble. Yeah. But same thing in non-residential. There was a big surge in non-residential, most categories of non-residential construction, 05 to 08. And if you look at, you know, commercial real estate, uh, um, hotels, uh, office space, uh, there, there's, there's been considerable overbuilding in most of those areas. So if you pull those out, you look at equipment and software, we're almost back to the pre-recession level. I, I think we're at 7.5% as a share of GDP. Pre-recession was 7, 8, 7, 9 in 2007. So I, I'm hard pressed to see that there's a big role for uncertainty there. It, you know, given that we still have huge amounts of excess capacity in large sectors of the economy, certainly manufacturing, um, I actually think investment's fairly strong right now. So I don't, I just, I just don't see much of a case here yeah. that uncertainty is really holding it back. Well, as a classical oriented economist, I, it's the interest rate mechanism isn't really where I'd look. I'm more interested in the fact that resources are not in um, excess supply uniformly. So to take an example out of my neighborhood, I live in suburban Maryland and there's about there's at least two brand new elementary schools uh, getting built in my neighborhood within the 10 miles of my house. Gorgeous, beautiful. Uh, this is Montgomery County, Maryland, which is an incredibly wealthy county despite the recession. It's sort of insulated to some extent by by government spending generally and employment. So there, things are humming along. There's, there's a lot of dirt being shoveled, big shovel-ready act, activity, and the Beltway is – got tons of work going on there's all this earth moving equipment and and by the way it's it's didn't all take place in 09 it's still going on right. um so I, you look at that and you ask well did that is that going to really put back to work the nevada carpenter uh yeah some construction workers are finding work in these different kinds of construction projects but a lot of this is just gonna not gonna get to them now I get, in the Keynesian view, I, I guess the extreme view, it doesn't matter. It's all just purchasing power. But you know, I look at the resources that aren't scarce, which are, I suspect, some of those higher skilled uh, machinery, uh, running machinery stuff uh, folks. And so you put increase the demand for them. You drive up their wages and you crowd out people who would have done other things with those skills elsewhere in the private sector. Does that – affect your assessment of the measurement at all? Do you think those effects are small or not important? Well, I'm inclined to think those effects are pretty small. There are two reasons for that. One is that if, if you try to look at look at occupations, you're really hard-pressed to find any major occupation where there's much evidence of real wage growth. So, you know, not to well, say... economists. Inter- <laughs> <laughs> we're doing great. I, you know, we're, we're having a... It's a, it's a banner year for us. Uh, have you seen that on that? Are you saying that seriously? I am uh, saying it seriously. I think there's... 
it's a good time to be an economist. There's an increased demand for our service. I don't know whether, whether literally whether wage growth is positive or not, but uh, uh, that's interesting. I, well, yeah, I mean, uh, don't you get more phone calls than you used to? Yeah, yeah, no, that's for sure. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know if my income's keeping up, but uh, but uh, oh, I hope it is. <laughs> and, yeah, getting phone calls, but um, but anyhow, yeah, I, I I don't think you find a lot of occupations where wages are real wages are rising so you know the evidence on that i think doesn't doesn't really show that uh you know we're we're crowding out of that sort the other thing that there was a study done and i'm forgetting who the authors were um one was at ohio state and i'm forgetting where the other i think it was canadian but anyhow they were trying to look at the impact of of this sort of crowding out and what they were trying to show was that uh in the states where you had the most spending um you had a decline in private sector employment they really didn't weren't able to show that. I mean, they 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 had done they had, had a narrow category of jobs, and I'm not saying they're cherry picking. I'm just saying how they had done it. They had a category of of employment where they could have a negative relationship. Even that was only marginally significant. And if you just did private sector employment, and I did ask, we we had some back and forth on this. It didn't. It came up altogether insignificant. So so in other words, if we're looking at Montgomery County as an area where you had a lot of spending. There, there was no significant decline in private sector employment associated with the stimulus there. Now, again, there's no simple way to do the test. I understand. Yeah, it's hard to do. You know, a lot of the public sector employment is going to, or public paid for employment is going to be in private, private sector, contractors. Yeah, for sure. So it's not, it's there, tricky. there's not a simple story there. But in any case, it's not, I, I just don't see the evidence for it. And not to say you couldn't find it, but. Well, we'll put a link up to that Dartmouth study that you mentioned and we'll, in the meanwhile, before this gets posted, uh, you'll send. You'll, I'm sure you can dig up that Ohio State study. We'll put a link up to that too. Okay. Um, but what I'm suggesting, let's put the crowding out aside for the moment. E- even if you don't have that factor, um, it's not obvious that paying folks who are already employed to do stuff, to do more stuff than they used to, uh, if that's really what's going on, y- you have to argue that there's this. Keynesian multiplier effect that's working through just their spending levels. They have more income and they're they're going to spend money and that's going to eventually put other folks back to work. And I'm a skeptic on that. I'm, what evidence do you think we have that that mechanism actually works as opposed to might work? Well, well, wait, there's two separate issues here. One is that we're employing some number of people. Now, some of those are people that would not have otherwise been employed. Yeah, the question is how many. I'm suggesting in many cases it may not be very large. Uh, certainly, for example, the stimulus, as, as we talked about it, along the way, a, a lot of it didn't go to shovel-ready stuff. It went to – a third of it roughly went to a one-time temporary tax rebate that put purchasing power into people's hands. They s- may have spent it. There's not a lot of evidence that they did. Uh, so I wouldn't expect that to have a big bang for the buck. We gave a, about a third of it to state and local governments to keep their employees employed or to – and a lot of them cut back on other things they were doing. I don't know if that had – much bang for the buck, and about a third of it, we actually spent more money. But that's some of that stuff that I know of. And of course, I'm cherry I'm cherry picking here. I'm telling you right now. I, I you know I looked at the stuff that went to education and thinking, well, it's nice that they're uh, funding more research on Parkinson's at Washington University in St. Louis, a, a wonderful medical per- center that I used to be associated with as an in economics uh, in the business school, and but. Is that really going to put folks back to work? And the answer is I don't think so. I think it just gave some grants to some nice people who are doing important work, and that's fine. But I wouldn't expect that to create a lot of employment. And I don't think we have much of an idea of how much of the stimulus was that kind 
versus stuff that really put people back to work who were unemployed before. Yeah, well, I think all of these are mixed mixed bags. You know, the tax cut story, you know, that's not my first choice. Uh, we did some beating up on that. It, it, it's a little hard to try and get an assessment because you have a story where there's basically a collapse of consumption, 08, 09, associated with the plunge in house prices, the wealth effect, you know, so you're trying to control for that. We put in various controls, you know, our estimates, I'm not going to say it's the Bible, somewhere between 50 cents, 50 cents and 70 cents on a dollar was spent. I know there are other estimates out there. I feel reasonably comfortable with that, primarily because we did beat it up. I mean, in other words, we were trying to, you know, control for that in ways that we felt were reasonable. And, you know, I, I didn't approach that with strong priors because, you know, tax cuts aren't my preferred way of doing it. So I wasn't, I didn't have an accident, you know, a stake in this one. So I feel somewhere 50 to 70 cents on a dollar was spent. To me, that's very good. I mean, better than not doing it. Uh, money given to state and local governments. Uh, state and local governments are operating under tight budget constraints. Uh, they have to balance their budgets. When they have a shortfall, they lay people off. They've been doing that. Um, so, you know, did it one for one translate into increased employment? Probably not, but I think it certainly kept a lot of people from losing their jobs. I agree with that. So, you know, so I'd say, you know, positive could have been more positive, sure, but, you know, was the right way. Um, the third one, when you get to the specific projects, again, a mixed bag, you know, the money spent on healthcare research might be, you know, as you say, it might be good research and everything. Um, not an area of high unemployment. Construction work at the time, we had 20% you know, nationwide uh, unemployment among construction workers. And that's pretty much everywhere. That was true even, in, you know, not, I'm not saying it was necessarily 20%, but, you know, you, you had high unemployment among construction workers, even in Montgomery County, um, you know, which had been, a, there had been a lot of building in this yeah, area, absolutely. which went to sure. zero. So I, I think we... I just don't think they're operating, a, you know, a larger piece of earth-moving equipment and rebuilding the beltway. I think they're still waiting for that housing sector to come back, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, it's mixed. That's right. I mean, they're different workers different types of skills. So some of those workers, you know, in residential construction, the skills are not, you know, there's some overlap, some differences. So it's not as though we re-employed everyone that lost their jobs when, uh, you know, the residential construction sector collapsed. So, you know, most of these cases, I'd say it's, you know, it's somewhere between zero and one. And I, you know, I'm inclined to think closer to one in the sense that we're employing someone that, you know, would not have otherwise been employed. It's not one. I don't mean to say it's even 0.9. I understand. You know, but but uh, I think in a lot of cases we are employing people that would not otherwise have been employed. So you mentioned that the stimulus wasn't big enough. Uh, you know, back in February 2009, the Obama administration, I think it was probably, I think it was the first serious piece of policy action that he took. Yeah. Right? It was passed in February. Yeah. Um, and he had a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate. There he was. There was a reasonable amount of love for the man among the general populace, general public. Why do you think he couldn't have gotten more? What do you think were the politics of that? And what's – and I agree with you that certainly today, although there are many people who are advocating large increases in government spending financed by deficits now, that's dead on arrival, both because there's a Republican House but also just because I think the American people are not so excited about it. Um, why do you think it failed then, and why why is it hard to make the case now? What what are some of the political issues? Well, at the time, of course, remember the big issue is you have to get sixty votes in the Senate, and they had fifty nine Democrats. I forget you had the 
the Franken election in Minnesota was contested, and That's I right. forget exactly when he took yep. his seat, but it was it, it, it wasn't at the beginning of the session; it was somewhere in February, if not March. I think he was there by February. But anyhow, he had to get to sixty, and he had to pull on that meant at least one Republican, and he had at least one Democrat. I believe it was Nelson from Nebraska was yep. holding Scott. out. So, so those were smart, kind of, <laughs> smart man. Yeah, <laughs> I know he got. I'm sure he got something good for it. I'm sure he did. <laughs> he was very smart that way. But in any case, that made it uh, difficult for him to get a bigger stimulus through, and he had to whittle it down. And you know, to my mind, it's really unfortunate. The things that got whittled down most in 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 the negotiation were was the aid to state and local governments, which I I thought was a good thing because that was you know part of the story here is you want money to be spent quickly, and there's no quicker way to spend it than to give it to state and local governments who otherwise would be cutting back, laying off workers, cutting back spending in various areas. So he had to make those those compromises to get what he got through. And then and here's what I think is a big mistake. I mean, people argue over whether he could have gotten more had he asked for more. So if instead of asking for his original seven hundred eighty seven billion, she'd asked for one point two trillion, which is what Christine Romer, his uh, chief advisor, had had recommended. Um I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Yeah, you know, the, the concern was that you'd have people in Congress who would just flipped and said that's crazy and you know walk away with nothing or you know maybe less. But what I think is, you know, at least to my mind, indisputable that once it was passed, he knew it wasn't enough. He knew that that was not going to get the economy back anywhere near to full employment. Certainly not anytime soon. But instead of saying that, he turned around and said, "Okay, now we're going to focus on we deficit reduction." We saw that. Yeah. And I, that that just totally undermined the case. He couldn't say, you know, now we're going to focus on deficit reduction and then come back, you know, a year later, two years later, and go, hey, you know, it turned out that wasn't big enough. And, you know, of course, he was touting the stimulus. He's saying he's talking about green shoots of recovery. That was March, certainly no later than April of 2000. Yeah, the summer of recovery didn't work and, out. Yeah, and, you know, he, he did this horrible overselling. And it was just, you know, it was a combination of, you know, really bad economics and certainly what in retrospect. I mean, I'm, I'm not the political science person, political advisor, but certainly in retrospect, looks to have been really awful politics as well. Yeah, and I think he's going to pay a tough price for it. Although, there is some signs of green shoots of recovery right now. Maybe they'll be enough to give him something to sell that's more attractive in November of 2012. It's hard to say, but um, do you have any worries about the long-run uh, fiscal health of the United States that would discourage you from advocating a larger stimulus now? Let's forget 2009. Let's say right now yeah. uh, you had some uh, direct say in this. Would you be pushing for for government spending increase right now? Absolutely. I mean, when I when I look to the long-term problem, I, I see overwhelmingly it's the health care story. We have a broken health care system, and the projections just show health care costs. And this is coming from the private sector, that health care costs are – just going to keep going through the roof. So currently, we spend more than twice as much per person as the average for other wealthy countries: Germany, Canada, England. You know, thrown into the mix, and that gap's just projected to continue to rise. You know, in the decades ahead. And if that were to really happen, that's going to have a devastating impact on our economy, and of course, has a devastating impact on the budget because more than half of our health care is paid for through the public sector through programs like Medicare and Medicaid. So, I mean, to my mind, we have a health care problem that we have to address, and that's independent of the budget. Um, of course, as I say, it affects the budget hugely over the long term because right. we have those programs. But I don't, I don't see there's a reason not to do stimulus now. Um, you know, so I think the main thing, get people back to work, because, you know, the, 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 the argument that, that 
you know, I get from people on the other side, we're going to have to tough this out. Well, you know, we have jobs. Yeah, it's uh, easy to say. And, you know, the, the people that don't have jobs, you know, the, they're not going to get these years back. They're raising kids. You know, their kids are four, five, six, and, you know, we're talking about them being unemployed two, three years. You know, that's they're not getting their time back if they don't feel they could raise their kids properly, give them the education, you know, make sure they have decent housing. They can't do the things they think their kids should have. That's lost. And that's an enormous price. And so I don't, to my mind, I, I don't, I don't think it's a close call. I, you know, the, the fiscal issues, you know, are we going to be in a situation we can't pay our debt? I mean, look at Japan <clears throat> with the debt to GDP ratio of over 200%. We're, we're nowhere in that ballpark and they're still borrowing at 1% interest. And, you know, I know there's a lot of differences between the U.S. and Japan, and, but still, you know. Well, some of them, some of them work toward not being worried. Having the world's dominant currency certainly makes it easier to run large deficits, at least for a while. It's always That's right. the risk. You always run the risk that you're going to find out that that period's over. And I think we're a little bit in that direction. I mean, my, my feeling is just that I'm not sure it works. So to spend real resources on things – you know, talking about infrastructure to, on a bullet train in California, for example, or other large projects that that may not have much of a payoff seems to be punishing our children as well. And toughing it out is a horrible piece of advice. But you know, I'm I, and I have a job. I have better than a job. I have tenure, which is, makes it even easier for me to be the other way. Do you could argue? But I'm worried about my kids. They're adolescent age. They're getting ready to. I have one in college. One getting ready to go to college. And I'm worried they're going to have trouble finding jobs. So. I, the real question to me is efficacy, and um, I don't think we have we know as much about what works as we like. Uh, what's your What's your view on the longer run fiscal challenge that we do face with healthcare? Um, so I, I've argued, many people have argued that the attempts to fix that in the short run, in the middle of a recession, did add the uncertainty we were talking about earlier, especially when it was done in a way where the legislation is not – it's not even set now. We don't really know how, a lot of how it's going to work. It seems like an unwise policy. Do you think that was a good strategy? Do you think uh, we should be doing something different? Well, I think it was a step forward in the sense that if, if it actually goes into effect, and that's going to depend on the outcome of the 2012 election, but if that actually goes into effect, you have extended health care coverage in a significant way. And actually, I think the most important part of that story is something that um, a lot of people and certainly don't fully appreciate, and the Obama administration has a push that is that it will mean that people have health care insurance, in many cases for the first time, who genuine health care insurance, I should say, who think they have it today. And what I mean by that is, you know, I and you're probably in the same situation. We get our health care insurance through our job. And my situation is that if I were to get seriously ill, um, I would at some point have to give up my job. And at that point, I give up my health insurance as well. And what that means is that, you know, I'm insured for sort of the day-to-day things, the normal, you know, uh, things I'm have to go see a doctor for, and even, you know, something that could be fairly expensive. But if I were to get some chronic debilitating illness, at the end of the day, I'd find myself uninsured. I'd have to depend on, you know, Medicaid or, you know, whatever sort of, you know, care I could get other than through insurance. So I think there's a huge step forward. Now, the uncertainty it created, I, I, again, this is one of these things, you look at the data, you have a hard time seeing a case that that has cost jobs because you know, there's a few things you should expect to see. For example, we should expect to see a rise in the average hours worked. You don't see that. The average average weekly hours is still below what it was uh, prior to the recession. Expect to see more temp employment. Temp employment still way down. You know, the idea being people don't have to get uh, insurance for temporary workers. So yeah, and the fixed, just the general fixed costs of turnover there are much smaller. That's right. That's right. So I, 
I just don't don't see the evidence for that. Um, now, long term, we have to fix the system. I don't think this does it. And what I what I support, and it'd be interested in getting your reaction. I, I actually support what I consider more market solution in the sense I'd love to see more trade in healthcare. That and there's a few different ways you could do that. One of the things you could let people who are on Medicare, who by definition almost, I mean they aren't all retired, but most of them are. Let them buy into the healthcare systems of other countries that have lower costs. Let them buy into uh, England's healthcare system or, or Germany's and, and pocket half the difference. So if the difference, and you look at the projections 10, 15, 20 years out, differences are in many cases over 10, even 20,000 a year, depending which country you look at. And suppose we said, let, let people pocket the difference. You know, so if, if, How would if, we do that? How would that work? Well, we'd have to negotiate a deal with these countries. Yeah, but, they don't. They, but they're subsidizing their own people. They're not going to want to subsidize Well, no, no, no. They're full cost. They're full cost to oh, care. Oh, because they're cheaper, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so let's say the or cost. even higher. Well, 110%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give them a premium. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd make it worth their while. So so let's just throw some numbers out. Let's say it costs uh, 6000 a year to give a person over 65 care in the U.K., and it costs fifteen thousand here, so we'll give them seven, you know, so they get a you know a thousand a pocket, and then you're looking at an eight thousand difference. So you know, if someone goes to the UK to get their care, they get four thousand, and taxpayers save four thousand. Yeah, that's going to be hard to implement, obviously, because most people don't want to go to the UK for their for their health care for a bunch of reasons. Some Un- might be understood, efficacy. but a lot would, and you know, my because guess you're going to let them pocket the difference. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, that's but, clever. I like that's interesting. Uh, I would certainly want to encourage people to spend their own money. Um, you know, when we say things as you did earlier, and it's a common argument that you know healthcare spending keeps rising and will continue to rise. That's not a natural process. Part of it is. Part of it's innovation. People find new stuff, but um, part of it's the fact that we're spending other people's money. And as long as we do that, and certainly through our employer, which is a crazy way to do it, I'm sure we agree on that. Yeah. Um, we we keep subsidizing it. it just it's going to get more expensive that way. Well, I, you know, again, I, I, I have a hard time saying people should. I mean, obviously, insurance is your money too. But you know, the the, the problem you get into is how to, you know, are people in the situation to distinguish between care that they really need and care that might be, you know, speculative. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, I've had my own experiences. Fortunately, I've never had a major illness, but I've had my own experiences dealing with doctors, and I've had to argue with them the opposite. I, I you know, I'm I do a, the same thing. You know, and, uh, you know, we're not experts. We're, you know, you and I are both relatively well-educated in the scheme of things. But, you know, there you have your doctor saying, oh, you need X, Y, and Z. And, you know, uh, how many people are going to challenge them? Yeah, it's true. It's a fascinating thing that, um, yeah, I'll say I'll pass and they look at you like you're crazy. Um, But sometimes there's a reason to pass just because there's these side effects they don't worry about. They're more worried about the side effects of not doing something and being legally vulnerable, I suspect. But um, yeah. Uh, part of it's just the hubris of an expert, you know. They have a hammer and they're always looking for a nail. So uh, it's always, uh, yeah, let's remove that. I'm thinking, oh, let's see how it goes for a while. Um, yeah. Let's close. We're almost out of time. Y- you and I look at the world differently, but as I said at the beginning, there, there's a bunch of things we we have in common, and I want to just let you talk about what you'd do differently in terms of the solution. One of the things we both agree on is that the regulatory process is often captured by special interests and seems increasingly so for one particular sector of the economy, the financial sector. Uh, if you go back to 1984 and the rescue of continental Illinois and its creditors, you see a long, steady pattern. You get lots of free market rhetoric, but the fact is in terms of practice, uh, there's a lot of um, socializing of losses and privatizing of gains. 
that sector's gotten a lot bigger. It's gotten a lot more uh, politically powerful. And um, the wages and profits that go to that sector seem way out of line and to me seem related to its political power rather than its contribution to our way of life. So we, I think we pretty much agree on that. The way I want to fix that is to make government less powerful. How would you fix it? I think you'd take a different approach. So what would you advocate given the political realities? Well, I would love to see breaking up of the large banks that, uh, you know, that we would bring them down so we could quibble over what the exact size might be, but, you know, require that J.P. Morgan and uh, Citigroup and Bank of America get down to a size where they aren't too big to fail, where there are component parts. I mean, so, you know, presumably we're talking about, you know, maybe breaking up a, a J.P. Morgan into five, six, eight, eight banks. Um, their component parts are not too big to fail. We could let any of them go under without... Uh, without serious repercussions to the economy. I'd also like to see them downsized by having a modest tax on, on the industry. I think part of the story here is that because of computerization, you've seen a huge increase in, uh, in, in trading volumes because the cost is just falling through the floor. So you could both trade the same assets more frequently, and it's possible to have much more complex financial instruments than would have been conceivable if you go back you know, with the technology we had 30 or 40 years ago. So, in effect, I see a financial transactions tax making up some of those losses. Also, just in terms of, you know, if we think of that being unfair to the industry, this is an undertaxed industry. You know, most of the taxes that apply to, you know, if we're getting a car, if we're getting clothes, you know, sales taxes, if we were to look to Europe, value-added taxes, those don't apply for the most part to finance. And I can't see a rationale for that. So this is my way of sort of equalizing. They're special. That's why. <laughs> They're special, yeah, yeah. So, and, well, that's, that is what they say. And yeah, you, you're sure. a little perplexed as though, yeah, and why is it you're special? <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot of ways to, to make them uh, less powerful, less uh, politically powerful, less economically powerful. Uh, Glass-Steagall, again, I'd like to see something like that sort of separation. And, of course, the rationale, at least in my mind, was that you have a sector of the financial industry that is insured by the government. You know, you're taking government-insured deposits, and the quid pro quo is, well, you aren't going to take big risks with, you know, with... My money. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with that to a point. I'm not sure Glass-Steagall is important as people... I don't think it's important as people say it is, but the fact is, as you say, we we have explicit insurance, and then we have implicit insurance, and they both allow them to um, take risks with my money. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, again, if we where we have the explicit insurance, there have to be clear conditions that, you know, here are the risks you could take, and we don't want the implicit insurance. The irony of this for me is that, you know, the justification for Glass-Steagall being removed or any of these other uh, maneuvers, uh, AAA changes, leverage, allowing things to be leveraged that look safe but aren't, uh, you know, the argument is, well, it's more efficient, which is something I'm very sympathetic to, but the fact is it, it doesn't, it, it makes them more efficient at it using my money, and I, that's not good. As long as that's there hanging over it, I don't care how efficient it is. I want, I want something yeah. different. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And the, and the argument on Glass-Steagall with making it more efficient was almost, you know, was almost contradictory by its nature because they always said they would maintain a strict separation between the, you know, the, the sort of commercial bank, the conventional commercial bank with the insured deposits, and then the investment bank or other components. And you go, well, if there's a strict separation. Yeah, where's the, <laughs> yeah, where's the efficiencies? <laughs> My guest has been Dean Baker. Dean, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot for having me on. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. 
For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.